So we've spent the season of Advent, instead of looking backwards, looking forward. Not waiting for the Messiah to come the first time, reading those great old prophetic texts in the Old Testament, waiting for Jesus to one day be born. Instead, we've jumped ahead to where we are, knowing Jesus has been born, came, lived, died, rose again, ascended to heaven. But remembering we still wait Wait for Jesus to one day come again. In the busyness of our lives, especially in this season, it's three days till Christmas. I don't know what all's on your to-do list, what's still on your shopping list, what you have to wrap, what you have to pack, everything else you have to do, prepare, cook. In all the busyness, it's easy to forget we're waiting. We're waiting for Jesus to come again. We're waiting for Jesus to restore all things. We're waiting. And this is our hope, that Christ will come again, will make all things new and whole and right and good. So we set aside this season of Advent to remember that waiting, the waiting that shapes our lives each day of them. And we've set aside this time to look at the letter 1 Thessalonians that Paul writes to these early Christians, the oldest piece of the New Testament that we have to remember how we wait for Christ to return. As we've made our way through this book, we've come to see um, all the different ways that our waiting is shaped as we look forward to the day when Christ comes again. And we're going to continue that this morning as we jump back into 1 Thessalonians and come now to the fourth chapter. So as we open the scriptures together this morning, I want to invite you to take a moment to set aside all of the urgent things on your mind and focus in on the important thing, the word of Christ to you this morning. Let's listen together. So then, brothers and sisters, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus to keep living the way you already are and even do better in how you live and please God, just as you learned from us. You know the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. God's will is that your lives are dedicated to him. This means that you stay away from sexual immorality and learn how to control your body in a pure and respectable way. Don't be controlled by your sexual urges like the Gentiles who don't know God. No one should mistreat or take advantage of their brother or sister in this issue. The Lord punishes people for all these things, as we told you before and sternly warned you. God didn't call us to be immoral, but to be dedicated to him. Therefore, whoever rejects these instructions isn't rejecting a human authority. They're rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You don't need us to write about loving your brothers and sisters because God has already taught you to love each other. In fact, you're doing loving deeds for all the brothers and sisters throughout Macedonia. Now we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do so even more. Aim to live quietly, mind your own business, and earn your own living just as I told you. That way you'll behave appropriately toward outsiders, and you won't be in need. 
Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about people who've died so that you won't mourn like others who don't have any hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose, so we also believe that God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. What we're saying is a message from the Lord. We who are alive and still around at the Lord's coming definitely won't go ahead of those who have died. This is because the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the signal of a shout by the head angel and a blast on God's trumpet. First, those who are dead in Christ will rise. Then we who are living and still around will be taken up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That way we will always be with the Lord. So, encourage each other with these words. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you want to keep your finger in it or find it, we'll look back a couple times. But before we do, I have a question. What is the goal of life? What is life's purpose? There's a lot of options out there. Good options we hear about, like the one who dies with the most toys wins. If so, make sure you accumulate a lot of stuff. Make sure you have cooler stuff than your neighbors have and more of it. Maybe instead, it's, it's another option, be comfortable. You know, make sure you have enough. Big enough house, enough stuff. Make sure you have the, the newer technology that makes life a little easier, a little more simple. Leisure time to relax, vacations to unwind, and retail therapy or a nightcap to unwind if things get a little too intense. There's another option. Maybe the goal of life is to be fulfilled. If so, make sure you have a happy family life. You meet all your career goals, that you check off everything on your bucket list, giving up the charity this holiday season so you can feel good about yourself. Maybe it's be fulfilled. Maybe it's help other people. Serve, give, help, pour out. But how will you ever know if you've done enough? How will you know if what you're doing is actually helping? There's a lot of options. We could keep going for a while, but Paul has a different one in mind. Paul has one single goal and purpose for our lives in mind as he writes this passage in 1 Thessalonians. That we would please God. The goal, the purpose of our lives as Christians is to please God. And he goes on a number of times to clarify, to say it's, it's to live lives that are dedicated to God. That's God's will for us, that our lives be dedicated to God. It says that a few times. But as it says dedicated, don't just think of like a plaque. You know, we have some inscriptions on the windows here in the sanctuary. There's a plaque there in the back. There's some plaques on the window sills, windows dedicated to people. Don't just think of those. Things you read, go, oh, that's nice, and move on. Dedicated. It's actually a very specific word. It means holy, set apart, sanctified. It's to be dedicated as the priests were dedicated in their work to the Lord, as the instruments in the temple were dedicated for holy use. They were set aside for a single purpose, that they would be used for God and for God alone. The purpose of our lives is to be dedicated, set apart, made holy, sanctified for God's use and no other and as Paul goes on and continues to write, there are three ways that he 
offers to the Thessalonians that they might do this live pleasing lives dedicated to the Lord. He talks about three areas of our life that are pretty central, three areas of life we love to talk about in public, three things that I'm sure as you woke up this morning, you were just hoping I would bring up when we got here. Sex, money, and death, right? Are you as excited as I am? Sex, money, and death, right? Will you at least come with me? Maybe. Okay, great. The first one he came to was sex. Paul uses verses 3 through 8 to tell us to avoid sexual immorality. But why is this the first thing he comes to? For that, we need a little background. Paul comes to Thessalonica in Acts 17, but in Acts 15, he was in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. The apostles, the leaders of the early church gathered together to come up with a solution to a problem. What to do with these Gentiles who want to become Christians. And it was decided there in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15 that Gentiles were a part of God's family because of their faith. Not because they had become Jews first. They didn't need to go and fulfill all the law to be circumcised, to keep the kosher laws, to become Jews, to be followers of Jesus. They could do so as Gentiles by faith. And so the apostles went back into the Old Testament and they found this section of Leviticus, chapters 17 through 18 now in our Bibles, that lays out the requirements for foreigners who wanted to live in Israel for Gentiles who wanted to be a part of the people of God. From the very beginning, they weren't subject to the whole law. There were just a few sections of it they were required to follow. And in that section of Leviticus, there were four prohibitions that the leaders of the early church passed on to Gentile Christians. And they were these. They're listed not only in Leviticus, but in Acts 15. To avoid food sacrificed to idols, to avoid blood, To avoid meat from animals that had been strangled, presumably because it still had the blood in it, and sexual immorality. These are the four requirements the apostles pass along to Gentile Christians. It's important to see that what happened there in Acts 15 wasn't that they got rid of the whole law and left just a few pieces in force. They actually upheld the whole law by just passing along the pieces that had always applied to the Gentiles. Four things Gentiles are asked to stay away from to be a part of the people of God. And so Paul leaves that meeting in Jerusalem with a letter from the church in Jerusalem signed by James himself, the brother of Jesus, returns home to Antioch, and then soon begins his missionary journey with Silas and Timothy that leads him shortly to Thessalonica, presumably with this letter in hand. We go back to 1 Thessalonians 1. We see they've done a good job of avoiding idols and turning away from them, but it seems they need some more encouragement to avoid sexual immorality. And so Paul lists this one first. It's important to see that this isn't just coming out of nowhere. That Paul isn't just harping on this because of his Victorian repressionist values. This is one of the four things that Gentiles were asked to stay away from, avoid sexual immorality. 
Jewish sexual ethics are actually underscored and passed along to Christians, to the Thessalonians, to us. You know, there are debates about what pieces of the Old Testament are still in force. Why do we follow some things and not others? How do we decide all this? This is what decided this. Acts 15, the apostles said, Gentiles must follow these sections of the law as they've always been asked to. Jewish sexual ethics remain in force for us. In the broadest sense, what this word means here is sex outside of marriage. But Paul gets into some more detail, asking us to control our bodies, to control our bodies in a a pure and respectable way. Pure is the same word as dedicated above, in a holy, dedicated way, given to the Lord, to control our bodies and not be controlled by our sexual urges. There's a sense today where sexual expression and enjoyment are ends in and of themselves. That for us to find fulfillment in life, we have to follow those urges and express them. And the more adventurous, the better. Sex has become a moral free-for-all. And the only rules are not to repress any desire within you and not to take advantage of anyone else. And thankfully, that second one is still there. But as Christians, if the goal of our lives isn't to fulfill and satisfy ourselves, but is to please the Lord, is to be dedicated and holy and pure to the Lord, then we have a different measuring stick in these conversations. We must consider how to use the good gift of sex and sexuality in ways that are pleasing to God and not as means of self-gratification alone. So Paul tells us not to be controlled by these urges, to hand over the reins to them. And we might picture a horse, a beautiful and strong, majestic creature, capable of incredible things, if it's tamed and trained. Right? No one would take a wild horse and place a child on its back or hitch it to a wagon for a ride, letting it buck, letting it jump, letting it pull whichever way it chose. It must be tamed and trained first. Paul speaks of sex in the same way. It is powerful. It is strong and beautiful. But only when it is tamed and trained, if we are to live lives that are pleasing to God. Avoid sexual immorality, Paul says. Control your bodies. Don't be controlled by your sexual urges. And don't mistreat or take advantage of one another in these things. That's the first thing Paul teaches us about what it means to live lives that are pleasing to God. There we made it, okay? Sex, done. Are you ready to talk about money? Paul actually on the surface speaks here about love. He says, you don't need us to tell you any more about loving one another. You're doing it. But underneath the surface, he has in mind the practical, laboring love that supports one another through loving deeds and financial support. Even in English, the word charity first just meant love. And it was as Christians loved and poured out then support that charity came to mean what it means now in contemporary English. Paul actually begins by telling them, I don't need to tell you any more about this. You're doing it. 
And not just for each other, but for Christians throughout Macedonia, throughout Greece. You're doing a great job. Now do more. And we have to pause there because I need to jump on Paul's bandwagon. It can be easy as a preacher to just call you deeper in, call you further along, and not step back to say, you're doing a great job. So let me do that. You are a generous and faithful congregation. You love one another. You love others well and practically. You love and care for each other in incredible ways. You love and care for me and my family in ways that we know and see and appreciate deeply. You know this and you do this. So now do even more. As Paul prayed last week, let your love abound and overflow and rich and increase. Pour out love in practical ways for one another and for the world around us. In Thessalonica, though, it seemed like a problem had arisen. We don't know what it was, but from Paul's advice, we can make a few guesses. Maybe, since these Christians thought Jesus was coming back at any moment, some of them had sold everything they owned, quit their jobs, and gave the money away. And when they ran out of food and money, they had to sort of rely on these other Christians to support them as they kept waiting. Why get a job now? Jesus is coming back any day. Maybe instead of that, it was some others who were exceedingly generous in the beginning. But soon they began to look around and see that not everyone was being quite as generous as they were. And then they began to notice some other things. You know, if he can't support the church, then why is he leasing a new car? And if things were so tight, then how would they afford that vacation they just took? Maybe it wasn't that at all. Maybe it was something else. Maybe uh, there were some who were a little too ostentatious in their giving. They wanted to draw attention to themselves and how much they loved, so they made a show of it. We don't know exactly what the circumstances were, but Paul's advice was this. Aim to live quietly. Mind your own business. And earn your own living just as I told you. That way, you'll behave appropriately toward outsiders, and you won't be in need. So for us, love one another. Be generous. Be radically generous. Be more generous than you knew you ever could be or seemed reasonable, but do it quietly. And as you do so, mind your own business, figuratively and literally. Figuratively, don't get so nosy about others' finances and what they're giving and how. And also, literally, mind your business. As Paul says in a moment, earn your own living. Support yourself that you're not an unnecessary drain on the rest of the church's love and charity and giving. Earn your own living that it won't be necessary for the church to support you as well and that you can contribute to the needs of others. This is how we can use our livelihood, our finances, our, our love in a way that is pleasing and dedicated to God. Give generously. Do it quietly. Keep working. I have a friend who's preaching this passage this morning as well, but they're in Ontario and in a farming community. He's asking his congregation, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? And one of the things he's going to tell them is 
they should go out and milk the cows. Keep working. Live quietly. Earn your own living. Jesus is coming back today or in a hundred years. Keep working. Keep going. That you may not only support yourself, but be able to pour out abundantly and generously in love for the rest of the community and for the world around you. We made it through sex. We made it through money, or at least finances and stuff. Are you ready for death? This is just what you wanted to talk about three days before Christmas, isn't it? Death. It's an important question, though. From the time Paul visited the Thessalonians until he wrote this letter was a little less than a year. And in that time, something that should not have been a surprise but was happened. Some of the Christians died. And with those deaths came new questions. What happens when Christians die? If we've died already with Christ and been raised with him, if we've been promised new, everlasting, abundant life, well, they died. And Jesus hasn't come back yet to finish all of this. So are they just sort of left out? What happens to them? It seems that some were mourning and undone by the loss of these Christians, thinking they have been left behind and left out. And so Paul writes, concerning those who have died, we don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. We don't want to be completely despairing over those who've died because we have some hope. Paul goes on to tell us exactly what that hope is in the face of death. It's verses 13 through 18. He says, Since we believe Jesus died and rose, we believe Jesus died, Jesus rose from the dead, so we also believe that God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus. Jesus has died and risen, so those who are in Christ, when they die, will rise one day in him. That's our hope. That's our hope as Christians. That's the hope that leads and guides us, that we are united to Jesus. And so in dying and in rising, we're united to him. Because we're united to him and he rose, we too will rise. Jesus will come someday. The dead who are in Christ will be raised up to new life. And those who are still alive will be taken up with them in the clouds to live now with Jesus forever. Our hope is that we will always be with the Lord, whether alive or dead when he comes. We will be raised and given new bodies to be with him forever as heaven and earth are brought together and the kingdom of God is fully present in our reality finally. That's our hope. In life or in death, and that's a pretty good hope. So Paul ends this chapter saying, encourage each other with these words. Encourage and build each other up that even though death may come, we will be raised to live with Christ. This is our hope. It's a hope that's encouraging, and it's a hope that must be shared, because it's a hope that not everyone has. You know, the criteria in the end when Jesus comes again isn't whether or not you were a good person. If that were the case, then we'd be right to squabble over who may get in and who gets out and where the line is drawn. We'd be right to open up our hope even to those who didn't know Jesus because still they lived a pretty good life. But our hope is not that we were good people. 
Our hope is not that we did enough good to cancel out the bad. Our hope is that we are joined to Jesus. Our hope is that we are bound to him in his death and in his resurrection. It's that we've been lashed to his lifeboat and we are being joined now to him. And if we are not joined to him, how can we possibly endure the storm? How can we possibly weather death to join in his resurrection? He is our only hope. And it's that hope that marks out our lives as pleasing to God. If you have not yet, you will in this life lose one you love. And we will grieve for them because they're not here anymore. And that's good. But as Paul says, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We are not undone in our loss entirely because we have the hope of Jesus that those who die in him will be raised in him. And so we know that one day we will be reunited. One day we will hold those we love again. This is the hope that we have. This is the hope that we live toward as we wait for Jesus to come. This is the hope that was sparked when Jesus was first born and that light first shone into our dark world. And it's the hope that carries us through the grave and into everlasting life with Jesus. It's the reason we can find joy even in our sadness. And it's the reason we can rejoice together at Christmas even when the world is still so dark. Amen?